0: All right, and welcome back to the final four episode of the Dead Too Early Bracket of the Music Madness Podcast. This is your host, Kent. I can't believe we're already nine episodes into this bracket, and we're almost done. Feels like we just started, Um, and honestly, now that we're down to the final four, and now we're coming down to our finalists, um, you know, it it could see any one of these final four winning the thing in reality. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what, what everybody voted on and how this came out. Um, Before I really dive into it, I did want to say sorry for this being out a little bit late. Reality kicked back in this week. My kids started back up school. I have a daughter in middle school for the first time. Work is picking back up. Soccer season is in full swing and all of the, you know, just life got in the way. So needless to say, I generally record this on Thursday evening and try to publish it on Friday. So sorry, I am putting it out on Saturdays. But the good news is, like I said before, I have an entire week of travel in front of me, so there won't be a podcast next week from me, but we are having, I'm going to have a little surprise in there. Uh, we're calling it overtime and it'll be be—it'll be out next week. So you it'll be a little bit more information on uh, the finalists. So we're, as you're kind of thinking through your vote, maybe hold off a little bit so you can get one more slug of info on these uh, artists to vote before the final vote on the 29th. So, uh, let's get into it. This season, we are going to be doing a third place game as well, as I said, which will be something fun. Okay, so what are we going to do today? Um, we're, As I said in the last pod, we're going to try and pull together all four artists' most played songs ever and talk about them. Seems like it should be an easy idea. It should be good uh, to try and do that, but boy, I did not know what I was getting into. Um, so f- there are so many factors that I've learned, and I'm really annoyed by this entire process. Um, first and foremost, there are so many different countries, regions, uh, radio streaming, all of those different type, types of things, U S versus UK versus Latam versus Australia, where the song was played was different. And then there's over time, some songs are more popular years after their release. Like I said, don't stop me now. Wasn't popular at all back when it was in the seventies and data wasn't as good back then, but now it's really good at monitoring. Nirvana is suddenly popular again with kids. But they're listening to different songs than we listened to when it was popular in the '90s. I don't know. It's it's just it's crazy. Um, and streaming Spotify, Apple, Pandora, Amazon, Google Deezer, Last FM, Pandora. Like I said, Pandora twice, but they don't all communicate. So there is no one aggregator out there that tells you which one has the most streams on all of them unless you pay for it. Um, so and it, it just is it's a real pain in the butt to try and figure out. What songs were the most listened to of all time? You would think it would be a simple concept, but it isn't. So I tried Googling it. I spent a lot of time. Try it yourself if you want to try and prove me wrong. I'd be glad to be proven wrong on this, but I could not find it. It was infuriating. I spent like whole three weeks this week that I usually do on research trying to find it. I got so frustrated, I just gave up. Um, So anyhow, what I did decide to do... um, And I I decided I had to pick one way to do it, and that's where I started. So I decided to do what I can. Um, I I decided to go to the largest streaming service on the planet, Spotify, look at the top five streamed songs from this artist of all time, and then we're going to talk about those top five songs. There may be some overlap between the three of my favorites that we talked about before, but I'll try and do a little bit more info on it and dive a little different and maybe bring some different information to the table. If not, I'll just do a little shorter blurb, but you know, there's plenty of content here. So here's the like five topics I'm going to talk about for each of these songs. First off, who wrote it? Which of their albums did it come off in what year? What is it actually about? I mean, so many of these songs we listened to for years and I was actually shocked doing some of this research on what some of these songs are actually about. Did it win any awards? Is it on any of the best best of lists? Can we get any copies sold? Like how many of them were sold record-wise? And then how many have been streamed? We'll talk a little bit about some of that. But like I said, there is a little bit of crossover. There's a lot of new songs, though, too, which will be kind of fun. I did create a completely new playlist again, which will be in the description, so check that out. So let's start with our first two, the two seed from our health reasons bracket, Freddie Mercury of Queen and the three seed from the freak accident bracket, Otis Redding, starting with Freddie and Queen's top five songs on there. Uh, There's two crossovers from my list, but there are a couple new ones that may surprise some people. So let's start at number five and the song Crazy Little Thing Called Love. The fact that this is A, a Queen song, and B, on their top five list kind of blows my mind. This song sounds like it should be Elvis or Buddy Holly rather than Queen. Who wrote it? It was Freddie. He wrote it for their eighth album that was titled "The Game," which was released in 1979. Which is even fo- more funny that came out in 79. It doesn't sound like a disco song. It was, it was, you know, kind of, you know, more the the country or Las Vegas sound, um, which is interesting because Freddie said it was a tribute to his musical hero Elvis Presley, and he wrote it in a bathtub. In 10 minutes, which is kind of crazy. In fact, in the music video, uh, Freddie is dressed like Elvis from his 1968 comeback special that we talked about. It's all circular. This whole podcast is just they're all talking about each other. Frody wrote the guitar part, too, which is rare for him. Most of the songs, he would write the lyrics and then he would go to the guitarists and they would help him put it together, which is why they worked so well together. Um, but it's a super simple guitar rift, and that's why Freddie said he was super good at it. Interestingly, this became Queen's first number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100, and it stayed there for four, four weeks. You would think they would have had another number one hit before this. They had other ones afterwards, but it was interesting to hear this was their very first. Um, story behind it, there isn't really much there other than Freddie just wanted to put together a song and sing like Elvis, and he did it expertly. Didn't win any awards for him, um, but it's one of their most successful songs ever. It's estimated that they sold around 2 million physical copies, and it's been streamed up to 665 million times on Spotify. Their number four song is uh, one I thought long and hard about putting on my top three list, but it didn't quite make the cut, and it's under pressure that they sang with David Bowie. The song was released on their 1981 album, Hot Space. Um, The song was credited as being written by all five artists, the four members of Queen and Bowie. Um, there are interviews with band members claiming that Freddie wrote most of the words, but I also found a lot of quotes that saying it was mostly Bowie. So it's uncertain. They were they were all in like Switzerland recording albums, and they happened to run into each other and said, "Hey, let's do a song together." Which is crazy that that turned into such a great song. Um, the Bowie rumors seem to be more prevalent, but it certainly feels like it was a combination. Like they they really kind of threw it together. The question is though, who came up with the bass line? Because that dun 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 dun. dun uh, the story is bassist John Deacon was messing around with it over and over, you know, just couldn't get it right until Bowie heard him doing it. And he said, he said, do this instead. I, I don't get exactly what it was, but oh yeah. He said, bring the fourth note down, dun, 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 dun which changed it, right? Like they were just doing the all at the same uh, level. And when they changed it, it, it made it the right song. So it's, the song started with the name Feels Like, and there are actually bootleg copies of the original version out there if you want to try and hear it. So it, it's a different song, but it sounds so much better after they tweak the bass line. Um, the song feels like it's about the daily pressures that people feel to live their lives, but I can only imagine that it's a little bit of personal narrative from a Bowie and Freddie's perspective because they're such public figures, and both of them kind of had a similar lifestyle and just the the air, aura around them. They're always under pressure to perform, come up with something great, which they did here. Um, there was a little bit of controversy around the song because in 1990, uh, a number of you will remember rapper Vanilla Ice sampled the song and didn't give it any credit or any permission. Uh, in fact, there's interviews of him trying to explain how um, his song uh, isn't the same, which it, it's... the same. They sued him. He relented, paid up. But how dumb do you have to be to deny that it's not the same exact song? The song went to number one in the UK, but didn't in the States. It didn't win any awards, sold about 5.5 million albums, and has been streamed 1.4 billion times, which is, that's just an insane number. All right. Their number three song is Another One Bites the Dust, also off their eighth album, The Game, from 1979. The song was written by their bassist, John Deacon. Not surprising that the song that is best known probably for its bass line also was uh, written by their bassist. Um, supposedly, they, he borrowed a riff from a disco band of the same at the same time called Chic. Uh, didn't even really think about it, but it kind of does sound like the, a disco song. I, I didn't catch it at first, but now I kind of did. Um, probably why it isn't one of my favorite songs of theirs. I don't dislike it. I just don't love it. You know, it's not one that I would go. Oh yeah. I love that song. Uh, interestingly, Deacon played almost all of the music on it, including like the hand clapping and the guitar. He, he played almost all of it. Um, so it just shows you how many musical musically talented people there are on this band. Um, The song is just about overcoming things. In the music video, it's set up as a gangster movie at the beginning. It's where the machine gun lyrics come in. Later, they talk about landing on your feet after a breakup. I didn't know this, but I guess the early cuts of the movie Rocky III, they used this song in the part where Eye of the Tiger was played. The director decided to replace it with Eye of the Tiger. I probably couldn't afford the Queen song, Um, so they went with that. I guess the reason it came out as a single is because Michael Jackson really was like a friend of theirs at the time and encouraged them that they needed a dance song. They needed something that could get people dancing. He said Queen needed a song that cats could dance to. They played it for Michael Jackson, and he said this song is going to be a hit. It's going to be huge, and it did. It went to number one. It was there for three weeks song was nominated for a Grammy for the best rock performance by a duo or a group, with vocal, say that three times fast, uh, and it lost to Bob Seger. However, if you go to any sporting event, it's probably played at least one time. It sold over 6.5 million copies globally, and it's been streamed 1.6 billion times on Spotify. At the two spot is a repeat from my top three, it's Don't Stop Me Now. As we said last time, this song was off their 1979 album Jazz um how many albums did they put out in that year that's crazy because i think they put out game and don't and uh jazz in the same year so they must have been working a ton i'm not going to spend a ton of time on this song since i talked about it pretty ad nauseum um it was written by a Song celebrating how much free and fun he was having. Brian May has been quoted as saying he didn't like it at the time because he felt like Freddie was kind of spiraling into drugs and sex and you know, this song wasn't really helping because it was about celebrating all that. But now he loves it because it's become such a celebratory song. He's seen videos of it being played at weddings and parties and stuff like that. So he, he's on board now. Um, it wasn't really appreciated at the time, but in the modern day, it's really come into its own. Um, a number of reviewers have it as like their best song which uh, i don't know i'd debate that the show top gear which is all about driving fast cars says this is the greatest driving song of all time uh i might question that but i can now kind of see that this is a really fun song to listen to while you're going fast saying don't stop me now uh so it yeah it's all about going fast um because of its recent success it's gotten quite a few album sales Estimated totals of around 7 million, and it's been streamed 1.7 billion times on Spotify. And their number one song's not going to surprise anyone. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, so I was singing this song the other day and my girls who are 11 and nine were asking, what are you singing? Because it's such a weird song. There's so many f- funny words in it. Um, so I had to show them the Bohemian Rhapsody scene from Wayne's world and they thought it was hilarious. They had never seen Gartha Garth the Algar before. And if you haven't seen that movie, shame on you one, uh, two, go watch it right now. Uh, but because of that scene, I know that song by heart. Um, the song is off of their 1975 album, a Night at the Opera. The song was all written by Freddie. And like I said previously, Freddie's bandmates uh, from his first band, Smile, said he started working on this song in 1960. And it was simply known as the Cowboy Song at that time. By the end, the entire song was just the band having fun. And it was almost like a parody of serious music. They put as like much crazy stuff as they possibly could fit into this song and my god did it work. Um supposedly for the opera part, May, Mercury and Taylor spent 10 hours a day recording the mamma mia let me go. that that part like that was the opera part over and over again at different octaves, different pitches and then they would overdub them all together. Um, someone pointed out on discord this week that there was actually a version of this song where the title was Mongolian Rhapsody, not quite as catchy, but still hilarious to kind of think the iterations that this song went through. Um, the song did run into problems when they tried to release it because it was six minutes long. And at the time, nobody made six minute long songs. Even at the time of its release, music critics said that they could tell it was technically awesome, but it was too long and way too weird. But now it's seen as one of the greatest songs of all time. It's number 17 on Rolling Stone's list of the top 500 albums of all time. It peaked at number three. Uh, It peaked on the charts three times in history. First when it was released. Then in 92 when the Wayne's World uh, movie came out and made it super popular. And then again in 2018 when a movie by the same name came out. And it really brought the eyes back to Queen. So you can just tell a great song when it peaks on the charts three times over like what, almost 40 years. Uh, it's crazy. It's sold somewhere around 15 million copies and has been streamed 2.2 billion times on Spotify. So now on for Freddie's opponent, Otis Redding. So I'll be honest, this is probably the artist I knew the least about in our final four, probably even in our top 16. It's been interesting learning more about him and his life, Um, but sadly, like the information about this man is little, right? Like there is not out a lot out there as there is about the other three artists. So, um, I've done my best, uh, but, and sadly the crossover with my top three and his top five is high. Like all three of my songs are in his top five. I didn't know a lot of his music. So his top songs are the ones that I knew, but, uh, you know, so we'll try and do a little bit more information on some of them. Starting at number five is song. Try a little tenderness. This is going to be a theme of Redding's Top 5, but this is a remake of a much older song. It was written in 1932 by Jimmy Campbell, Reg Connolly, and Henry Woods. It was recorded by the Ray Noble Orchestra. From there, it was re-recorded a number of times uh, by Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra. It was on Redding's fifth album, The Complete and Unbelievable, The Otis Redding Dictionary of Souls, say that one three times fast, in 1966. It was a song supposedly sung to men about how to treat women, specifically young girls. Um, It was written in a very different time. So a lot of the words are actually pretty old school and misogynistic. Um, But, you know, it it was trying to be like, be kind to younger girls, but it was some of the things have not held up. Um, It was his biggest song prior to "Dock on the Bay. It's number 136 on the Rolling Stones list of the top 500 songs of all time as well. He sold just under a million copies of it, but there have been almost 140 million streams of the song on Spotify. At his number four, it's the song These Arms Are Mine. This song is an Otis Redding original and appeared on his debut album, Pain In My Heart. Like we said on the top episode, songs episode, he wrote it and he was able to perform it while backup singing for uh, another band, Patty Cake. Uh, the song is about his desire to be in the arms of the, his dream girl, which is speculated to be his eventual wife, Zelma Redding, which her original name was Atwood. Um, it's an old school love song. It didn't win a lot of awards or anything, but it's a song that got him started. Sold almost seven hundred thousand albums and has been streamed over a hundred million times. His uh, number three song is Stand By Me. Interestingly enough, I actually thought this was an Otis Redding song. And I wonder how many of those plays on Spotify don't realize that he remade the song that was originally recorded by an artist named Ben E. King in 1961. Otis recorded his version of it in 1966, only five years later. So this song has some super interesting facts about it. There have been almost 400 versions of this song recorded by different artists, including Redding, John Lennon, Muhammad Ali sang this song, Tracy Chapman, Florence and the Machine. Uh, It's wild that this song has been remade so many times. BMI, which is the Broadcasting Music um, Institute, it's a company out there that monitors uh, radio play of songs, said that The versions of this song all aggregated together, it's the fourth most played song ever on the radio. Ben King said he wrote it based on a gospel hymn, which is based on Psalm 46, uh, which talks about uh, not being afraid even if the mountains are carried into the sea, which now makes the words make a lot more sense. Kind of interesting that uh, that that's what this song is really about. Um, the The original name of the song was Lord Stand By Me, but then they changed it into a love song to talk about a woman. So it, it's interesting. Who knew? I, I had no idea. Ben King's version of the song is number 122 on the Rolling Stones list of the greatest 500 songs of all time. Uh, it was used as the theme song for the classic 80s music, uh, 80s movie by the same name. You gotta love Chubby Jerry O'Connell and River Phoenix. rip Uh, In the movie, Redding's version uh, has over 230 million streams on Spotify. At number two, his version of Hard to Handle. This is an original song by Otis Redding uh, and two other writers named Al Bell and Alan Jones. Uh, They put it out on the album, The Immortal, Otis Redding in 1968, one year after his death. I talked about it on my top three list it's a song about a cocky man talking to a woman who already has a boyfriend or husband and he says that she should go home with him i know i've always uh known this as the black crows version but like i said i actually like redding's version a little bit better i couldn't find sales numbers for the single version of crow of his but the crow's version did sell a lot better uh his version does have a hundred million streams on spotify And I, again, wonder how many people actually thought they were getting the Black Crows version when they got his. And number one is pretty obvious. It's sitting on the dock of a bay from the album by the same name. It was released a few months after his death, which I feel like I've talked about far too much. Um, As a reminder, Otis wrote this song sitting on a dock in San Francisco, trying to avoid a mob of fans outside his hotel. I read that there's actually a plaque on the Embarcadero in San Francisco um this claims that this is where he was sitting when he wrote it but in reality he was just north in Sausalito which is a smaller town outside of San Francisco so it, it's interesting to hear you know it wasn't quite wrote in San Francisco but he was hiding out somewhere else um re- referring back to BMI uh, this is named as the sixth most played song of all time on the radio which uh, it, it's crazy that two of his songs are amongst the list. Uh, it's also on Rolling Stone's Greatest Songs of All Time list at number 26. It was remote made by Michael Bolton and Sammy Hagar. Like, well, that's a weird... That's a, the only thing those two ever have in common. Um, the song sold around 5 million copies and has been played almost 600 million times on Spotify. The results here aren't too surprising. Freddie Mercury cruises into the final with 92% of the vote, He was unstoppable. He's had a rumors-like run through this competition. Mercury's into the final, and now to figure out who he's going to actually pair up again. All right, so the other half of the final, um, we see our number two seed, Jimi Hendrix, versus our number one seed in Kurt Cobain. Jimmy from the Drugs and OD bracket, and Kurt from the uh, Violent Death group. The Battle of Seattle. I only realized that after I recorded last week, or else I would have mentioned it. Uh, it's crazy that these two mega rock stars both came from that city. So let's start with our boy, Jimmy, uh, at the number five song for Jimmy is voodoo child slight return from, uh, his album, electric Ladyland. This was in my top three list. And I really do love this song. Such an amazing guitar at the top. So original when I did the top three, I told the story of it being a, almost a tribute song to his longer version, the 15 minute jam session, voodoo chili, um, the song is supposedly about Jimmy expressing how he's a blues singer at heart. The song talks about who Jimmy is and being his own person. Supposedly a one show. He actually said that this was a black Panther Anthem. Um, So there must be some element of black empowerment in the meaning as well. Um, Regardless, it talks about breaking down barriers to your success. I couldn't find single sales for this song. I might just be too old. Um, and, but it did stream 170 million streams on Spotify At number four, it's another repeat. It's the song. Hey, Joe. So this song has been remade a bunch of times. The original authorship is actually still in question. Earliest records of it were in 1962 when it was registered by an artist named Billy Roberts. Uh, there was another guy named Dino Valentin. Uh, valent Valenty, who claimed to have worked on it with him and there was another scotsman named lee partridge who said to have worked on it with billy roberts but roberts said he'd been playing it since the 50s and never registered it until the 60s anyhow yeah, it doesn't really matter it's just kind of crazy how even less than 100 years ago trying to figure out where things actually came from was really hard uh two la bands the leaves and the birds who had David Crosby as the lead singer, recorded versions of it in 1965 and 66. In fact, the Birds performed it at the Monterey Pop Festival, which Jimmy was also there. Jimmy recorded it and put it out as a single in 1966. The song itself is pretty obviously about a man named Joe, who in the first verse found out his girlfriend is cheating on him, and in the second verse he has killed her and her lover and needs to run away to Mexico. Um, I guess this is actually a variation of an even older story called Little Sadie, which is supposed to be about some events in a small town called Thomasville, North Carolina. And there are actually a number of songs in the late 20s and 30s that talk about this story and a man named Joe who had killed a woman there and then fled. Um, Hendrix's version of this song is by far the best known version. It's listed as number 201 on Rolling Stone's list of the top 500 songs of all time. It's also his very first release and really the one that put him on the map. So it, it has a, like a special place for Jimmy, uh, for sure. The song has 170 million streams on Spotify, so it's uh, rather small relative to some of the others. Uh, number three is uh, a new one that we haven't talked about yet. It's Little Wing. It's such a short and just beautiful song. I know most everyone has heard it, but I doubt many people know it's called Little Wing. I know I didn't until my sister got the lyrics for this song tattooed on her back. I was like, oh, which song is it? And she played it for me. I was like, oh, I didn't know that was the name. It's such like a short, just trippy song. It's just great. It was off his 1968 album, Axis Bold as Love. Interestingly, he uses a glockenspiel to create the dinging sound that's present kind of throughout the song, which I have no idea. I didn't know what made that noise, but I knew it was unique. So Jimmy was always cryptic about what his songs were about, likely because he was so stoned or high. He didn't really know. But in a number of interviews, he talked about that this song had some Native American influences on the lyrics. He said that the spirits inhabit nature and animals. And in this case, it was about a woman inhabiting birds and walking through the clouds. Um, Some... Critics or interpreters have like associated this as being angels, like a female form with wings. In reality, I'm not even sure Jimmy knew what it was about. It just sounded cool to talk about some of the erythral things that he was seeing. The song is now at number 188 on the Rolling Stones' top 500 songs of all time. It has 244 million plays on Spotify as well. At number two is Purple Haze. Um, There was some complaining on Discord that this song wasn't in my top three. I do really like this song. It's just not one of my faves. Um, It's off his first album, Are You Experienced? It was put out in 67. It was uh, one of the most innovative guitar songs of art all time. There's so many sounds on it that no one else was making with a guitar at that point. I don't play guitar, but supposedly this was the introduction of what's called the Hendrix chord. It's like five notes all played at the same time, and you had to be able to grip the guitar uh, a right way. There was something I saw that like he had a super long thumb, which allowed him to hit all five chords at the same time, which other people couldn't do. Other guitar guitarists were trying to do it, but he really popularized it, which is why it's called the Hendrix chord. Um, so like most Hendrix songs, it's pretty tough to know exactly what it's about, but it seems pretty clear from the opening lines that it's about using some kind of multi- mind-altering drug. It's all in my brain. I'm acting funny. I don't know why. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Yeah, that's uh, that's the that's drug of the day right there. Um, however, the second verse is kind of about a girl putting a spell on him. There's some speculation that he's saying that love is like a drug and makes you do silly things like a drug, which kind of makes sense. Um, others speculate that it's just about pot because sometimes that goes by the name Mary Jane. So she puts a spell on me, right? Like it could be that, right? Like, so, um, it, there also is uh, some references to his use of LSD. So, um, there could be some there as well, so it, it's unknown for sure. But uh, I think it's pretty obvious. It's about drugs. The song is number one seventeen on the Rolling Stones' top five hundred of all time. Um, it it was put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Grammy Hall of Fame. It's been streamed three hundred and fourteen million times on Spotify. Number one is not a surprise to anybody. It's all along the Watchtower. This is on my top three episodes. It was written by Bob Dylan. It was a hit for him. And Jimmy remade it only six months later. Um, Dylan has said that Jimmy's version is better and has actually changed his own version to match what Hendrix was doing. But I think one thing we didn't talk a lot about when we talked about it was what is this song actually about? Again, Jimmy's songs are weird. Um, So are Dylan's. But uh, the, the lyrics tell a story about the Joker and the thief and a conversation between the two of them. The Joker feels trapped and is trying to escape, but the thief says he can't escape. Um, someone is exploiting him and he wants to get away. Um, there's a lot of speculation about who the two characters are in this story. Dylan has never explains his songs either, but there's some theories about it. Uh, something that the thief is actually Dylan's manager... Who had signed him to a really crappy deal where he wasn't getting as many royalties as he thought he was bu- worth? Um, some thought it was a conversation between him and Elvis of all people. Um, the most likely view is that the Joker represents like social outcasts who need to find a way to change the system. Either way, I'm not uh, going to listen to the song the same way going forward because it just it's really interesting to think about it. Um, one other thing was Dylan had just returned from an 18 month break after he had been in a pretty serious motorcycle accident. So he really didn't care anymore. He could just kind of let loose. So that's kind of, I think where maybe some of this came from either way, it's a dark, dark song, at least lyrically. Um, some say he wrote it to kind of reveal, like sound like the book of revelations, um, which, you know, is, is kind of dark in itself. This was Jimmy's highest charting song of his career, reaching number 20 on the charts. He sold over 700,000 copies of the album and has actually 630 million streams on Spotify. So now on to his opponent, uh, another son of Seattle, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. And this is great. Um, I love all five of these songs, but I didn't include any of them in my top three. These five songs are all early 90s angsty, thoughtful. Um, this is where Gen X and the millennial generation kind of start to come together a little bit because the both groups kind of claim uh, this, this sound and this song. Um, there was rebellion against the hair metal of the 80s, which was what the Gen Xers kind of were all about. Uh, and it really set the way rock music was going forward for the next 30 years. It's wild because four of these songs are from the album Nevermind. And I had one song on my list from Nevermind. There are 13 songs on that album. And uh, five of them are on the list that I created. And one of their biggest songs from that album isn't on either of these lists. We'll see if you can figure out which one it is. There are probably four other songs from the album that I debated adding to my top three list. But I didn't do it. So that album is just, it's crazy. So let's start at our number five song is something in the way. We talked a little bit about this song when we talked about Kurt's history and the song is somewhat autobiographical. For a while, Kurt Cobain was homeless. He'd been thrown out of his mom's house. He'd been thrown out of his father's house. He'd tried living with friends. He'd been thrown out of their house. Um, the song actually describes living under a bridge and it seems to be more of a story than reality. Bandmate, Krist uh Novelacek, uh, has said that Kurt never lived under a bridge, but and Kurt himself said it was more or res- less a representation of how he had lived. There is a bridge near his home that he used to fish off of um, where he talks about fish don't have any feelings, and that's where that lyric came from. So it's more just talking about his experience of being homeless and early on in his life. Um, either way, the song has such an eerie quality, and it's just sad. It's a, it's acoustic. It's largely just Kurt and his guitar um, just singing the song was actually never released as a single but it did chart in 2020 because it was used in a trailer for the Robert Pattinson movie the Batman thanks a lot Courtney uh, just selling out the songs left and right. Um, the song has like 384 million streams so it's done pretty well for not ever being released as a single which again it kind of is a song that wasn't popular back. In the day but it's become even more popular recently at number four it is like the one song from nirvana that my girls can remember the name of Which is lithium, which is (laughs) great. That's the one they can remember. Uh, It was written by Cobain as a poem first. I never realized this, but the song is a story of a man who had a really rough life until he found religion. It makes sense now, kind of listening to it, because he says over and over that he found God and that he found his friends and they live in his head. Uh, It makes a little bit more sense now. Um, If you remember the story of Kurt growing up, he went and lived with a family friend who was super religious. And claimed that for a while he actually became religious. There's no proof that the song is about him, but it sure does seem to fit with some of the parts of his life. The song is very different from their number five song, Something in the Way. It's angrier, it's more screaming, it's heavily distorted. Thanks, Jimi Hendrix, for that. Uh, The song did chart on the Hot 100, peaking at number 64, and has 525 streams, on million streams on Spotify. Number three on this list is their only song not from Nevermind, and it's the song Heart Shaped Box. This was probably number four on my list of favorite songs. It was one that I thought long and hard about putting onto the top three list. It's off their album In Utero and was really a big hit off of that album. It's interesting because this song has such a distinctive hook, but I guess it took a long time for Kurt to come up with it. Like He worked on it for months and couldn't come up with the hook. I'm glad he took his time because now it's one of those songs that you could probably recognize with like three notes because it just is so distinctive. Kurt wrote it, but it's not exactly clear what the song was about. The most popular theory is about uh, how much he loved his wife, Courtney Love. Which is interesting because the chorus says over and over again, "Hey, wait! I've got a new complaint." Uh, is that her complaining about him or him complaining about her? Not, not really sure. The way those two lived, you, you couldn't really tell. Love herself has tweeted that the song was about her um, special body part that Kirk liked. Um, the The song is. Uh, she tweeted it out saying, "You know that song is about my thing." to someone else that was remaking it and uh, they stopped. Uh, The song has been streamed over 600 million times on Spotify. You should know the top two now, but um, I was kind of surprised that there wasn't a name on here yet. Think you can guess it? Uh, We'll see. So you probably know the top two, I've already told you the bottom three and there's one that's missing, we'll see. At number two, we have Come As You Are. This song was written by Kurt, and it was the second single released off of Nevermind. So I never knew this, but there was a lot of controversy about this song because they were accused of stealing the guitar riff from two different bands at this point in time. First one was the song was called 80s from the band The Killing Joke. And the second song was called Life Goes On from a band called The Damned. Go listen to them. I listened to them after I read this. And yeah, I could see they kind of have a point. Um, they, and The Killing Joke was pissed. Uh, they, they sound almost exactly the same. The words and the verses are really different, but the opening riff, very same. Um, this, the Killing Joke supposedly filed a lawsuit um, to try and block it, but it was dropped after Kurt died because they didn't want to be known as the band suing Kurt Cobain, Cobain's widow. Um, the song itself is probably one of their darkest songs, which is saying something. The words are just sad. There's speculation that the song is about his heroin addiction because at the time in Seattle, there was a campaign to prevent HIV and they were encouraging users of heroin to soak their needles in bleach. And the line come doused in mud, soaked in bleach. Mud is a slang term for heroin. And then, you know, if they're soaking it in bleach, that's kind of what it's all about. Um, Kurt himself described it as a contradictory song about expectations, take your time, hurry up. The lyrics do talk about a gun as well, which could have been hinting at him about his eventual suicidal thoughts. Um, But most people think it's kind of about the needles uh, versus an actual gun. It was like he was holding a gun to himself. Um I thought it was interesting that uh, Kurt's hometown of Aberdeen, Washington, which is just south of Seattle, has actually put up a welcome sign to their town which reads Come As You Are as an homage to their famous son. So there you go. Um the song peaked at number 32 on the charts and was their second single that came out off of the Nevermind album. It was on the charts for 18 weeks. Uh and this is one of their most streamed songs. It came in at 1.1 billion streams. Man, the kids nowadays really do love Nirvana. Number one should be a surprise to no one. It's their song that really started it all. It smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, that's a, that's right, a song about girls' deodorant. Like it or love it, this is one of the most influential songs of all time. It rewrote an entire genre of rock music. It brought punk, grunge, rock to the forefront. And Guns N' Roses, Poison, ACDC, all like immediately kind of fell to the back burner. They still continued to put out music, but they hair metal as a genre started to die pretty much because of this song. Cobain was really the master of the guitar hook. Like Jimmy mastered the guitar, but like just having a song that you could recognize in like three notes. That's what Cob- Cobain and Nirvana are really all about. Um, and, and this is probably them at their best. Um. Interestingly this is one of the songs on the album uh the Nirvana album nevermind that actually credits all three band members as writers on it Cobain, Novoselic and Grohl all wrote some of it. Uh at least Novoselic and Grohl are getting royalties from this one. Uh, so that that's probably good. Um the story of the title is actually kind of funny. Uh one of Kurt's friends uh, and a member of the punk rock band Bikini Kill Wrote on his, the wall in his apartment, Kurt smells like teen spirit, meaning he smelled like girls' deodorant. He claimed he had no idea what that was and thought it was kind of an inspirational, uh, like he smelled like anarchism and punk rock. So he thought it was funny and he didn't actually know until after they'd wrote the song that that's what it was about. So it's just kind of funny, the, you know, stuff like that. Um, so the lyrics are largely nonsensical. Um well what you can understand doesn't make any sense and he mumbles most of it. Um supposedly there was actually resistance from radio stations to play it at first because they had no idea what he was saying. At one point he screams, A mosquito, my libido. What does that mean? Like MTV proposed running captions underneath it because the lyrics were so un ununderstandable. They were just you couldn't figure out what he was saying. Um uh, largely it seemed like a teenage rebellion anthem, but probably more because it doesn't make any sense and the music is just, sounds like just angry about everything. Um, there's no way to dance to this song other than a mosh pit. Like it, it can't be done. Good luck dancing to that song without just wanting to slam into something. Uh, the song is, was played at my prom and it quickly devolved into a mosh pit. And I remember we it was back when we had CDs and we made the CD skipping. So yeah, that just tells you how old I am. Um, the song was meant to ease Nirvana into the radio. It wasn't meant to be their breakout song. They were supposed to have come as you are, be the real big one, but kids loved it. It started getting play on radio stations, on colleges, and it blew away expectations. It went number one on the modern rock charts right away. The band, uh, became uncomfortable with how popular this song became and they stopped playing it at concerts for a while. Kirk said in 1994 that he still liked the song, but he was embarrassed to play it. Because it just felt like uh, kind of sell out, right? Like he, especially with how he was, he just didn't like how popular it was. The song has been included on too many best of lists to include them all. It's gone into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's list of songs that shaped rock and roll. It's number 80 on the Recording Institute of America's list of the top 100 songs of the century. Kerrang magazine, it's a rock. Magazine said it's the greatest song of all time. Rolling Stone listed it as number five on its list of the top five songs of all time. Um, Cobain uh, said he made it. He knew he had made it as a like rock star when Weird Al Yankovic called them and asked if he could parody it, and he made a song called "Smells Like Nirvana." Um, it's it's totally funny. I guess they like told him the lyrics. He told them the lyrics, and Kurt just loved it. Um, the song is the most streamed song of all four of our artists with 1.7 billion streams, which is an absolutely insane number for Spotify. So just to kind of answer the question on what song was missing, I'm shocked that the song In Bloom wasn't in their top five. This was the fourth single off of Numbermind. And I can remember this song being bigger than Come As You Are, bigger than Heart Shaped Box. It was probably their second biggest song behind Smells Like Teen Spirit in the 90s. So it just it kind of shows you the strengths and weaknesses of using Spotify uh, to try and do this because like that was their song. So I'm interested to hear from you all. Was that the case? Did I miss anything for some of the other artists as well? Um, so the results kind of break my heart, but Jimi Hendrix knocks off Nirvana with 57% of the vote. I love Jimi But hopefully you've heard my love of Nirvana come through about this. So it's sad to see them not be into the final. But there we have it. Our final two are Jimi Hendrix from the Drug and OD bracket versus Freddie Mercury from the Health Reasons bracket. Honestly, this isn't a surprise. I kind of called early on that these two were probably going to be in our final. They also had to go through the strongest brackets. And I said that this was probably my guess. Um, So now, do our voters prefer one of the greatest vocalists of all time? or the greatest guitar player of all time. I'm not saying one of the greatest. Uh, We'll certainly be interesting. We'll be tough. In our third place round, we have Kurt Cobain of Nirvana uh, out of the Violent Death Group versus Otis Redding from the Freak Accident Bracket. We'll be fun to get to talk about all four of them again uh, in a couple weeks. So now for voting. Like I said, again, traveling for the next week. Um, So voting will be open all the way to September 28th. So take your time. Tell your friends to vote. Talk about it a little bit. Um, I'm not going to leave you hanging for a week though. Um, but I, have worked out a little surprise for you to tide you over till the final pod. We'll have something I'm going to call overtime come out next week. Uh, and it'll do a little bit more diving into some of the, the little known facts about some of these artists. So if you're unsure who to vote for, feel free to wait a couple more days and you'll get a bit more color about them. Hopefully the end of this week, if you have enjoyed the episode, drop it a five star or thumbs up. Like always, I've included a link to vote a link to our Discord, and a new link to a Spotify list to listen to just the songs that we talked about this week. And remember, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. If you don't like how things are going, the only way to change it is to invite more of your friends with similar music tastes to vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy The Madness.